Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 32 of the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This week, we're going to be covering the parathyroid. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here at Physician Assistant Exam Review. Uh, And you can get all of the show notes, everything we do over at the website, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com. Definitely go check that out. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been doing the endocrine system. And so this week, uh, what did we do? The thyroid, the last couple of weeks. So we're going to pick up with the parathyroid this week. And just like the thyroid, we're going to talk about hypo and hyper. Uh, parathyroids. We'll go over a little bit about what the thyroid is and, and move through in that sense. So this week, let's go ahead and jump right in to our priming questions. Number one, describe Chavostek's sign. Describe Chavostek's sign. What is the number one cause of hypoparathyroid? What's the number one cause of hypoparathyroid? Are parathyroid issues more of a problem for men or women? Are parathyroid issues more of a problem for men or for women? And then our last one is describe two possible x-ray findings in hyperparathyroid. Describe two possible x-ray findings in hyperparathyroid patients. Take a minute and think that one through. Do you remember what the parathyroid does? You may be able to come up with it. I want you to take a little bit of effort, a little bit of time, and think about those. Don't just let them roll away as you're driving, as you're running. Take a minute to spend a little time thinking about them. Number one cause of hypoparathyroid. Are parathyroid issues more of a problem for men or women? Describe two possible x-ray findings in hyperparathyroid patients. So let's start talking about the parathyroid and what exactly it does. There are four parathyroid glands. They're located adjacent to the thyroid. Uh, right along it, actually, it's very difficult to tell the difference when you're performing a thyroidectomy, when you're in there looking at it. it they look like little globs of fat, essentially. It's slightly different, but that's the, the, the best description I'm going to be able to give you. The coloration is slightly different, but they look like little globs of fat on the thyroid. The parathyroid produces parathyroid hormone, right? PTH, which increases serum calcium in response to low serum calcium. So it's checking for It's a feedback loop, right? We've talked about that before. I know it's a struggle all the time, but when serum calcium drops, the parathyroid goes into action and produces and it releases PTH, which then increases serum calcium. There's a whole host of reasons and ways and and physiology behind how it does that uh, with osteoclasts and osteoblasts, and we can go through that whole thing, but we're not doing it because it's not really relevant for your exam. So we're going to stick to the parathyroid increases serum calcium um, in response to low serum calcium. Hyperparathyroidism is our first topic for today under parathyroid. And in hyperparathyroidism, it affects women three to one over men. So again, I'm always building that picture in my head of what's what I'm going to see on an exam, of what's the characteristics they're going to give me so I can answer the question. And here is a dead giveaway. It's going to be three to one men to women. So, I mean, women to men. So when, and this is the hype, and this is parathyroid, hyperparathyroidism, just like the thyroid was. So anytime I run into something with the thyroid, with the parathyroid, I'm going to be looking for a female in the question. And that's not always going to be the case, of course. And it won't always be the case in practice, but a lot of times it's going to be the case. And it's going to be something that they're going to try to clue you in with on your exam. 
The same thing, uh, the other example I like to use is, is uh, fibroid uterus. So fibroids are that, uh, the, the um, non-malignant tumor that, uh, that grows in the, in the uterus, causes some dysfunctional bleeding. So it's very common for me, we take them out robotically, surgically we go in and take them out, right? Well, they affect African-American women significantly more than Caucasian women. I mean, I'm not sure the numbers off the top of my head, but it's big. And I see the same thing in practice. I see a lot, a lot more African-American women than I do Caucasian women or Asian women, it, but it does happen for them. So understand, I'm not saying that it never happens in these other individuals or men never get this. But what I'm saying is on your test, they're trying to clue you in the right direction. They're trying to feed you the answers and they're not gonna give you, most likely they're not gonna give you an Asian female with a fibroid on an exam. They're not gonna give you a 98-year-old male with hyperparathyroidism. It's just... Uh, they're not going to do that. They want you to get the test questions right. As much as you think they're against you and they're fighting you and they're trying to make them difficult, they're really not. So for hyperparathyroidism, you can have primary and secondary, just like we do with a lot of things in the endocrine system. Primary is typically, this is caused by an adenoma. So this is primary just means within the thyroid itself. Or I'm sorry, within the parathyroid itself. Secondary means it's a, it's, you're getting hyperparathyroidism for a for a secondary reason for something outside the parathyroid. So it's typically uh, primary is typically caused by an adenoma, but it may also be hyperplasia or a carcinoma. Secondary hyperparathyroidism is most commonly chronic renal failure. This causes poor production of vitamin D, which will decrease calcium, and then we'll have a low calcium and it'll stimulate the the production and release of PTH. You can also have a malignant tumor. Uh, in the breast, lung, or pancreas is the most common that can uh, also create a secondary hyperparathyroidism. And then a calcium deficiency, right? Um, if we just don't have enough calcium, then you're going to get a hyperparathyroidism. In clinical presentations, two things to note here. Number one is most of this will be an incidental finding. Most patients will not come in complaining of any particular symptoms. And then to make matters worse, the symptoms are vague and sort of all over the place. We'll try to pick out the ones that are specific. But this is the one where they give you, uh, if you're in lecture or you're in class, you get moans, groans, stones, and bones because those are the different places where you can get parathyroid issues. Remember, we're talking about calcium going up and down. So those are gonna be where the locations where our problems are. And that's kind of a helpful mnemonic, but it's one of those that I always stumbled over and it did more harm than good to me in school because I just never understood, I don't know, I just struggled with how to associate it and make it useful. But it's definitely one that's very commonly used. But again, most of these patients will come in uh, asymptomatic. So in practice, maybe not all that helpful except to just understand it's a very general complaint so with muscle in the muscles you can get paresthesias muscle weakness and decreased tendon uh, deep tendon reflexes the moans part comes from mental changes which is general malaise depression you can get cognitive impairment all the way to psychosis remember because we're, we're trying to crank out calcium here right so in the heart you can get high blood pressure a prolonged pr interval shortened qt interval and heart block GI, so this is our abdominal groans. You can get constipation, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, abdominal pain, weight loss. Again, none of that is super specific or helpful, right? So patient comes in with nausea and vomiting. I feel like every time I say that, it's a complete waste. I shouldn't even bother to include it because you're never going to be able to identify a specific disease uh, by that presentation. So it definitely gets listed, but just understand a lot of these are very generalized 
reactions. Uh, stones, so kidney stones, hypercalcemia. This may be a presenting symptom for a lot of patients. Kidney stones, hypercalcemia-induced nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which will cause a kidney stone. They get polyuria, polydipsia, and then obviously the the kidney stones. And in the bones, they can get bone pain because we're, we're creating or we're pulling calcium from the bones. So you can get arthralgias, you can get bone pain. And then lastly, if this goes on long enough, you have an increased risk of pathologic fractures. Remember, pathologic fractures, fractures, uh, I mean, it's not from a trauma. It's not like you fell down the stairs and broke your leg. It's you fell from standing. And I don't mean you fell from standing. I mean, you, you were standing and your leg broke and you fell. It's, a, it's because that bone gets so weak that it can't even support your body. Uh, that kind of a fracture as a, as a pathological fracture. Skin, uh, you can get pruritus. You can get some itching in the skin. Labs and studies. So calcium is greater than 10.5. You get an elevated PTH. That's diagnostic, right? Elevated PTH makes sense. That should be easy for you to hold on to. And then I just told you uh, calcium greater than 10.5, but that's not 100% true. Because if you think about it, your serum calcium is going to be elevated in a primary hyperparathyroidism right? Because you're going to be, if you're cranking out too much PTH, let's say you've got a, a tumor that's creating PTH, right? You're going to keep putting out PTH constantly and calcium is going to keep going up and up and up and up. And PTH is going to keep going up because that tumor is just cranking it out. There's no feedback loop there. Normally PTH goes up for a little bit, calcium comes up and then the PTH drops off because we've got our feedback. As soon as the serum calcium rises, PTH production stops, but it's a little bit different in a secondary hyperparathyroidism. Here, if you're going to run labs, you're going to have a low serum calcium and still a high PTH in a secondary hyperparathyroidism because there's some reason why we can't get calcium out of the bones or from someplace else. Remember, it's a secondary issue. So the, the, the serum calcium is going to, may remain low despite the excess PTH. You may also have a low vitamin D. And in primary disease, you'll have a low phosphate as well, usually below 2.5. But then again, in a secondary disease, you may have an elevated phosphate. It sort of depends because again, we're cranking out that PTH. So you're getting a response in the phosphates. This is certainly possible. Imaging. So CT, uh, CT or MRI, not necessarily very helpful. Ultrasound, not very helpful either, unless you're looking at kidney stones. X-rays, demineralization of the bones. Remember, we talked about this earlier. We asked that question earlier. What are some X-ray findings? Hyperparathyroidism subperiosteal bone resorption, especially in the fingers. That's a good uh, one for your test question. So we talked about how nausea, vomiting, not that helpful in discerning this one, uh, but subperiosteal bone resorption, especially in the fingers, really helpful there. You can get see cysts in the jawbone on x-ray and a salt and pepper skull is sort of the key terms here. And again, I doubt you're going to see the term salt and pepper skull. You're not, but you may get an x-ray that has sort of that appearance to it. So go uh, definitely check that out. And then a DEXA scan may help to determine the amount of bone loss that has occurred. Treatment. Again, most of these patients are asymptomatic and may not need much of anything. If they are, and if they do, the number one way to deal with this is surgical removal. So 94% are successful when you go in and you take these out, right? Because if we're overcranking on PTH, if we go in and we remove the parathyroid gland that's causing the problem, we're going to decrease our PTH issue. It's 94% successful. Parathyroidectomy is the recommended treatment for, sim for symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. Now, the, the other side of that problem, though, is you're going to get hypocalcemia as a common complication, and they may need to be treated with a uh, calcium supplement uh, forever, right? Because if we go in and we take out all four parathyroid glands because we can't tell which one's causing the problem, 
then they're not going to be, they're going to have trouble regulating their calcium, keeping the calcium level in the serum up. If we can just remove the one that we know is a problem, then that's a little bit different. But in, in a lot of cases, you can, like most common complaint postoperatively is going to be uh, hypocalcemia. Medical treatment for these patients is going to be lots of fluid and uh, on admission, IV bisphosphonates, pemidronate, zeladronic acid, calcinate, vitamin D, estrogen decreases serum calcium and postmenopausal hyperparathyroidism, so something to consider. And then propanolol may be used to protect heart against elevated calcium levels. So that's sort of a secondary issue. Uh, we're going to treat the symptoms there. Moving right along, hypoparathyroidism. The causes here uh, for hypoparathyroidism a little bit different. It's going to be the number one cause is going to be acquired hypoparathyroidism post-thyroidectomy. This is the most common issue. Now, uh, like I said earlier, when you're in there doing a thyroidectomy, the parathyroid glands look like little bits of fat. They don't, they're, they're sort of hard to distinguish. You can distinguish them. I'm not saying that you can't, you absolutely can, but you can also accidentally take them out. It happens, I, I forget what the numbers are, but it's a real number. So the most common cause of hypoparathyroidism is post-op thyroidectomy. You accidentally took out part of the parathyroids. Another cause would be post-parathyroidectomy, right? So if we take out the parathyroids on purpose, we still are going to wind up with hypoparathyroidism. You can get heavy metal damage, low magnesium, uh, certain tumors or infections. Rydell's thyroiditis is another cause. Again, we said, talked about that before. It's pretty uncommon. You can get an autoimmune hypoparathyroidism. It can be congenital. And then there are lots of genetic disorders. Well, not lots, but there are a handful of genetic disorders that can also cause this that we are not going to go into today. Clinical presentation, acute disease symptoms for hypoparathyroidism. So we have two stages here. We have acute disease, and then we have chronic disease symptoms. Initially, they can get some irritability. They can get some tetany, so the involuntary contraction of muscles. Cramping, convulsions, tingling. So those are going to be your, your so you get sort of, sort of these weird uh, muscular issues for the most part early on. In the chronic disease symptoms, you can get some lethargy, you can get some Parkinson-like symptoms, you can go so far as to get mental retardation, you can get anxiety, changes in personality, cataracts to blurred vision, dry skin, decreased eyebrow hair, which is always an interesting one, nail and teeth defects, you can get brittle nails, that's one I kind of like, um, I don't know, it feels like somehow I can remember that one, and then hyperreflexia uh, is also possible. So as we have cr a chronic issue here, of not cranking out enough PTH, so not bringing that serum calcium up, we get some some obvious issues that occur with a low serum calcium. There are two signs that go here that you can test for in your physical exam, which are Chavostek sign and Trousseau's sign. Chavostek sign is when you tap at the corner of the jaw and you get a reaction in the muscle at the corner of the mouth because those muscles look, are kind of... Uh, excitable, I guess is a good word to, to, to use here. And then you have Trousseau's sign, which is if you put a blood pressure cuff on somebody and blow it up, and that cuts off, that essentially acts as a tourniquet to cut off blood flow to the forearm and to the hand, that'll exacerbate the low calcium, right, by not bringing in any more. Uh, so it'll exacerbate the low calcium that's already there. And the patient will slowly uh, get where they contract the hand medially, uh, the hand will come up, the, the fingers will sort of clench a little bit and it'll turn in towards the body. Uh, and that's Trousseau's sign. It'll just show you a low calcium. It's a, it's a, <clears throat> a clinical sign to, to show you the low calcium. So if you have Chavostic sign and Trousseau's sign, 
I'm not sure how clinically helpful these are. I don't see a lot of this in my practice, but certainly uh, easy to ask test questions on. Labs and studies. So you can, you, without me even talking about the labs and studies here, you should be able to come up with what we're going to be testing for, right? Just based off what we're talking about. We're going to be looking at calcium, right? <laughs> we're going to be doing a blood test serum calcium. Calcium will most likely be low. Uh, if we have hypoparathyroidism, we don't have a mechanism to increase serum calcium. So calcium is low. You may need to use corrected calcium will be low because it's calcium is also bound to albumin. So if albumin is low, you're going to need to use the corrected calcium. What's something else we're going to be checking for in order to diagnose this? We're going to be checking for parathyroid hormone, right? Is that going to be high or low in hypoparathyroidism? It's going to be low. Uh, magnesium will often be low. And you can also check the urine, and that should also have a low calcium. Other studies, a CT or X-ray may show uh, dense bones, cutaneous calcifications, calcifications of basal ganglia. All that's because we're not stimulating the, the, um, the remaking of the bones. We're not using creating those osteoclasts to break down the bone, which is one of the things PTH does. So you may get ex excessively dense bones. On an EKG, you can get a prolonged QT wave and T wave abnormalities. And then lastly, on a slit lamp, you may see early cataract formation. Remember, this can lead to cataracts. A treatment uh, emergently, you may need to maintain an airway. Again, we can get some weird muscle stuff here, so you have to be prepared for that. IV calcium glucon gluconate, magnesium if appropriate, calcium supplement, vitamin D supplement, and close monitoring of calcium. So this is something we just have to re, we're replacing, right? We, 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 we're not gonna replace the PTH necessarily, we're gonna replace the, the calcium, but it's it's replacing in the, the serum, trying to make up for the, the, the lack of PTH to stimulate that serum calcium to come up. Our last topic for today is pseudo-hypothyroidism. And this is something neat that I sort of forgot about the easiest way to think about pseudo-hypothyroidism, at least I think so, is to talk about diabetes and diabetes type 1 and diabetes type 2. And if you get and understand those, I know we haven't gone through them yet, but you should at this stage, pretty much no matter where you are, have a pretty good idea of the difference between diabetes type 1 and type 2. In diabetes type 1, your body doesn't make insulin, right? You're not creating the substance, the hormone. In diabetes type 2, you make insulin, but your insulin receptors do not respond to it. They've been, let's say, over-primed in that case, but they just don't respond to the insulin that's being produced. So in parathyroidism, in hypoparathyroidism, you produce parathyroid hormone. It's not that, like, the, like we said, for the most common causes, we remove the parathyroids and then there's no thyroid hormone being produced. Well, in pseudo-hypothyroidism, hypoparathyroidism, it's a, it's a mouthful, uh, you do make parathyroid hormone, but the receptors don't respond to it. So you still wind up with a hypothyroidism. It's just for a different reason. Um, so the clinical presentation here is similar to hypoparathyroidism. I'm not going to go through it again. Labs and studies, again, very similar. Calcium will be low. Parathyroid hormone, though, is going to be, what? Is it going to be elevated or decreased if we're talking about pseudohypothyroidism? Well, it's going to be elevated because we're going to have excess parathyroid because we're going to be pumping out parathyroid hormone, but the receptors aren't picking it up. So the calcium is still going to be low. So the parathyroid doesn't realize that there's, it doesn't test for how much parathyroid hormones out there. It tests for how much calcium is out there. So calcium is low. It's going to keep producing parathyroid hormone and the receptors are going to keep not really responding to it. The treatment, um, they, these are typically not as, as severe as a true hypoparathyroidism because some of the receptors still work but you're going to supplement with calcium and vitamin D. And that brings us to the end of parathyroid, of the parathyroid. So pretty straightforward, pretty easy. We're talking about regulating calcium. We're talking about one hormone 
and a, a small feedback loop. So this one's not too bad. We moved right from the thyroid into the parathyroid. So really pretty, pretty straightforward stuff. Let's talk about our study tip for today before we wrap everything up. Our study tip for today is going to be what I want you to think about and I want you to start doing is paying attention to when you study best, when you retain the most information, when you feel the best, when you feel the most confident. It took me a long time to come up with when my best time to do my get my work done is, when the best time for me to retain information is, when the best time for me to study is, when the best time for me to work is. I fought this for years. I always tried to be a night person. It turns out that that couldn't be more wrong and I always wanted it to be. I do much better in the morning. I hate getting up in the morning, but I get so much more done in the morning. And it may just be now because I've got kids and the house becomes a mess. So I can't, once the day starts, I don't have control over it anymore. And it takes a lot of mental energy to manage everything going on in your day. But I find for me, if I'm up at five o'clock and I work from five to six, I get two or three times the amount of work done as I would if I try to do it in the afternoon or at night before bed, I simply can't do it. I can get I get very, very little accomplished. I sit in front of the computer for an hour or I sit down to write for an hour or, or in some cases I'll sit down to study for an hour, but it doesn't mean I get anything done. You may or may not be the same and it doesn't matter to me if you like to study in the morning, the afternoon, if you can take a nap in the afternoon and study after that. What's important is you realize at different times of the day you have different ab- amounts of energy and different abilities to focus. So if you schedule out your day and you've got 10 hours and you put an hour in to study, if that hour isn't at the right time of day, you may get very little done. But if it's at the right time of day, you may get a ton of things done. So what I want you to do is just start paying attention. Just start thinking about it during the day and maybe adjusting your schedule a little bit. Try getting up in the morning and working before school and see how that goes or studying before you go into the clinic for the day. Because I don't know about you guys, but for me, after, let's just say I have a, I have six, seven, eight hours in the, in the operating room, that, that's a ton of concentration. Well, studies have shown that you can maintain peak, that the best people at this can maintain peak focus, peak concentration for four hours a day. And that's if you're amazing at it. Well, if I'm in the operating room for six to eight hours straight, when I come out, I am not going to be able to do a lot, a lot of valuable work. It just isn't going to happen. It's just not going to be part of what I can do. Even after a rest and then I try to sit down maybe after dinner, it becomes very, very difficult where I find if I get up early and I'm fresh, even though I'm tired and I don't want to be up, my brain's still working much, much better than it would have been the night before or the afternoon before. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Think about what times may work best for you and it doesn't matter what that time is necessarily. It matters that you're paying attention and, and sort of see how long you can focus for, see how long you can concentrate for, see how much you're getting done, sort of keep track of that and, and use that because it's a tremendous tool. All right, let's go back to our priming questions and grab our answers. Describe Chavostic sign, describe Chavostic sign. That's where the muscles are a little hyper excitable because of the depleted calcium. So you're going to tap on the jaw and it's going to make the muscles of the mouth twitch a little bit if you find the right spot. What's the number one cause of hypoparathyroid? Hypoparathyroid, number one cause is a post-thyroidectomy. Post-thyroidectomy, which means after a thyroidectomy, we're, we're usually getting a PTH level to see how it's doing. Are parathyroid issues more of a problem for men or women? Are parathyroid more of a men, problem for men or women? It affects women three to one over men. Describe two possible x-ray findings in hypoparathyroid patients. 
describe two possible x-ray findings in hyperparathyroid patients. You can get demineralization, subperiosteal bone resorption, especially in the fingers, remember that one, cysts of the jaw, and then a salt and pepper skull. And I just want to take a minute here and thank everybody who's been leaving re reviews on iTunes. Um, those numbers have been climbing, and I do really appreciate those. They certainly make me feel better and make me continue to produce the material here. So that's great. Um, once again, the number one thing I can recommend to you is go over to the website and join the email list where I do uh, daily review tips, study tips, uh, ways to get through your day better, all kinds of different things over there that are, that's like I said, it's just been my favorite thing I've been working on for the past year. If you don't get over to the website, but you're driving your car and or you're, once you get pulled over, the easier way to do it is to text to the number 33444, the word, all one word, PA exam, and that'll get you signed up and get you going for uh, hopping on that, the email list, which again, has just been I think has been a, a fantastic resource. So go ahead and go check that out. It's super easy to unsubscribe if you're not interested once you check it out. But definitely, I think you'll be surprised at how much you get out of that. At least I've been uh, very, very pleased with how that's been going forward. So definitely go check that out. And I think that wraps it up for this week. So until we come back again, we'll continue with the endocrine system and good luck on all of your exams to anybody who's taken it uh, now. We're, we've been doing a little bit of a discussion. The reason I'm hesitating, I, I we're doing a little bit of a discussion on the email list. Uh, about the pilot program for the Panerai and whether or not that's worth it. So I have some people signing up for that and we've just been carrying on that conversation and seeing which way I and a bunch of other people are going to head. So definitely go check out the email list and I will take and I will see you uh, in a couple weeks. Take care. Bye.